we are almost literally just flushing our trash down this big toilet that used to be called the Gulf of Mexico. Here's the beauty of it, though, Chuck. Let's say people decided, I'm not going to eat that anymore. I'll put my tomato sauce in my spaghetti or something like that instead of the meat sauce. I'll have, instead of a chicken salad sandwich, make mine hummus. You still have to grow some plants, but the amount that you need is dramatically less than what you need if you're going to feed all the feed grains to the animals to get the meat out. And so all of that acreage that I see in my childhood home in North Dakota, you wouldn't need anywhere near that acreage to grow food if people ate the plants directly. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQ with us. And this is episode 33 of season 4, number 228 overall. And today we are going to be continuing to broaden our health horizons and shifting from not just our own health, but to the health of the environment. This is the second of our two Earth Day specials. Now, on the last episode, I spoke with Dr. Martin Heller about the water footprint of your diet. And today, we're going to be talking about the carbon footprint. And for that, I will be joined by Dr. Neil Barnard. And we're going to be spending a good chunk of our time discussing the impact that the beef industry specifically is having on the environment. The beef industry is certainly one of, if not the top offender. But you're also going to hear Dr. Barnard explain why switching from beef to, say, chicken or fish still can't be considered a vote for the environment. Because frankly, they each have their own set of climate-crushing issues. And then also today, we are going to be revisiting another conversation that I had with Dr. Heller that was recorded last year. And this was around the time that Burger King was putting out advertisements for what they called a reduced methane emissions whopper. And essentially what BK was saying was that the beef from said whopper produced a third fewer methane emissions. But what Dr. Heller and I got into is that this flatulence science essentially flatlined. And how Burger King's conclusion about this, quite frankly, it stunk. But before we can raise our environmental health IQs, I wanted to let you know that this episode of The Exam Room is brought to you by Kinder Beauty 100% Vegan and Cruelty-Free Beauty Subscription Box. Each monthly box contains more than $85 worth of beauty and self-care products that are kind to your skin, kind to the planet, and kind to animals. And best of all, Physicians Committee has been named one of Kinder Beauty's charity partners, which means that a portion of their beauty box sales goes directly to support our work. And you can learn more about Kinder Beauty and even pick up a beauty box for yourself by visiting kinderbeauty.com. With Earth Day, everybody's mind right now is on the environment, but how many people are actually thinking about what's on their plate versus all of the trash that they're putting out every week? 
Well, it turns out that more than a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions go directly to the diets that we choose. And so on today's show, we are going to talk all about your food and the environment and the ramifications that come with it. And to talk with us about that today is Dr. Neil Barnard. Sir, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Chuck. This is really an overlooked point. You you think about the environment, you think about emissions from a car, you think about the trash that you see on the highway when you are driving, you think about even the polluted seas, but you're not really thinking about what you had for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Yes, and but by comparison, the trash that you see by the roadside and so forth, the straw that was, you know, in your your soda that might go into the ocean, those things are actually trivial compared to the magnitude of effect that we see from our our day-to-day diet changes. Now, that doesn't mean we want trash and we want straws thrown in the ocean. We want to clean that up too. But if that's all we are doing, then we are really not working for the environment. And I know that there has now been uh, a lot of research that is diving into this. It seems like there's been more and more over the past couple of decades uh, looking exactly at what it is that we're talking about today. And hopefully there's still more to come. But what do we know right now as far as what the difference is in terms of environmental uh, health uh, when you look at a plant-based diet versus the standard American or Western diet? I have to tell you, Chuck, this, this is something that, that is relatively new in the public discourse, but is, all, is also something that's been a dirty little secret uh, that many people knew about for a really, really long time. And I'm talking about when I get on a plane and go back to where I grew up. I grew up in North Dakota. And I get off the the plane in Fargo and drive down the road. And all along this side of the highway is corn. And it's it's as far as the eye can see. And it's, it's really beautiful. Every corn plant is identical. They're all genetically modified corn plants. And on this side of the highway, it's all soybeans. And it's as far as the eye can see, and it's gorgeous because every plant is, is planted in these rows. Each plant is, is genetically modified and identical. And the key here is that that enormous acreage is never going to feed one human being. All of it is hog feed, chicken feed, and cattle feed. And so to make a burger, you have to feed a huge amount of feed grains into the cow uh, to get a little bit of meat out. And that's true for chicken, it's true for pork. And to raise those feed grains, you need an enormous amount of irrigation. Uh, The amount of irrigation that is required to make about one pound of beef is about 5,000 gallons of water. That's, That's how much ends up being applied day after day, month after month, year by year after year on the corn, on the soybeans to grow them up and then the cows eat them. Uh, but Chuck, the, the real problem then is that when the irrigation goes on the plants, it picks up the fertilizer and the pesticides that were applied also. And it washes into the streams that washes into the river. And eventually it goes down the Mississippi and is flushed out underneath Louisiana and Texas into the Gulf of Mexico. And all of those chemicals that have, that have been used to raise these products um, end up creating a dead zone. And the dead zone now, as of 2021, is about as big as the state of New Jersey mm. in, in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm talking, well, I'm talking dead. I'm talking about the fish don't grow there, the plants don't grow there. 
um, it's been killed off by our because of our penchant for chicken breast. It, this dead zone is it pretty close to where the river empties into the Gulf, or is there yeah. a stream that that carries it out a little bit further? Um, it, it's it's out a little bit further, but but it is we are almost literally just flushing our trash down down this big toilet that that that, that used to be called the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. Um, and here's the beauty of it, though, Chuck. Let's say people decided I'm not going to eat that anymore. I'll put my tomato sauce in my spaghetti or something like that instead of the meat sauce. Um, I'll have instead of a chicken salad sandwich, make mine hummus. You still have to grow some plants, but the amount that you need is dramatically less than what you need if you're going to feed all the feed grains to the animals to get the meat out. And so all of that acreage that I see in my childhood home of North Dakota, you wouldn't need anywhere near that acreage to grow to grow food if people ate the plants directly. And some of it could be used for vegetables and grains and beans and fruits. Some of it could go back to prairie. Some of it could go to forest. And, and that's true in Nebraska and it's true in Kansas and it's true throughout North and South America. Um, think of the Amazon rainforests. You don't need to be burning them if you're not gonna be raising feed grains for, for cattle anymore. You said 5,000 gallons for a pound of red meat, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, have there been any really accurate, detailed studies looking at that head-to-head versus what it would be for a pound of beans, say? Oh, my goodness sakes. It's dramatically less. It's dramatically less. Um, and uh, to put this into context, if you were to brush your teeth and leave the faucet running, you know, and, and so uh, your roommate is looking at you, you know, why, you, why aren't you conserving water or whatever, um, that's about a gallon of water. Um, if you were to wash your car and really do it thoroughly, maybe 55 gallons. Um, but a person who's having just one ounce of beef is wasting so much water. Um, it is it is really astounding. But again, the, the big problem here is not just the water wastage. It's all of the chemicals that go with it from the fertilizers and the pesticides, too. Not to mention the fact that the cows are metabolizing beings. They're belching methane into the atmosphere. Yeah, let's stick with the with the beef industry really quickly. This is a pretty interesting one. I, I believe it was last year. Uh, there was, uh, this is just the. I mean, it, it's mind boggling that this was actually a thing. Uh, I, do you remember the ads Burger King put out about their uh, essentially environmentally friendly Whopper, um, where they had cows that were supposedly producing less methane? Yes, I. I, I yes. Um, the, the word humane washing kind of comes to, or green washing kind of comes to mind. Exactly. Yeah. I remember speaking with uh, Dr. Martin Heller, who we've had on the show this week as well. And he was telling me that they did a gross over-exaggeration, uh, over-exaggeration of the benefits of whatever the feed change was that they were giving these cows versus what, what the standard cow goes. And they said that it, it, it cut it... I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Don't quote me on it. Cut it by a third is what they were proclaiming. But in actuality, it was a fraction of a percent of a difference here. Uh, And and you talk about greenwashing. That's exactly what that was. And of course, we're talking about Whopper and we're talking about beef. So when we're looking at the meat industry as as a whole, is beef the real big offender here? Um, Beef is is a big offender. Now, when I was talking about those fields in North Dakota, they're feeding cattle, they're feeding pigs, they're feeding chickens. So all animal agriculture is a big problem, including fish. Um, But the issue with with cows, 
is, is sort of more specific because they're ruminant animals. And so they eat a very, very high fiber diet and they've um, in, in their digestive tract, which is a little bit different from yours and mine, they are producing methane that they then belch out. And if you modify their feed so that it has a different fiber content, different carbohydrate content, you can, you can adjust up or down the methane output a little bit. But as Dr. Heller said, the difference is trivial. And if you are a meat eater, you are not an environmentalist. You can pretend to be one, but it's a lie. Um, however, a switch from beef to fish is not a vote for the environment. A switch from beef to chicken is not a vote for the environment. Uh, many people have pointed out the disasters that, that those industries have as well, I'm sorry to say. And I believe you said something about we, we in America eat a million chickens an hour or something outrageous like that? It's exactly the number. That's right. So you're thinking about 24 million chickens every single day. Uh, 365 days out of the year. I'm not going to do the math, but I would imagine that that too takes an enormous amount of feed and resource to be able to grow that many chickens. Um, yes. Uh, you don't get a thousand chickens per hour down the American esophagus um, by having them frolic over the hillsides and, and eat whatever they find in the forest and so forth. They're not ordering room service either. Um, the chickens are... In, You've seen the pictures. Um, they are fed in an industrial fashion. They're fed feed grains that are grown for that purpose. So that requires fertilizer, pesticides, um, all, and, of course, a huge amount of irrigation. Um, but, Chuck, I have to say, I think one of the big wrong turns people make, going to chicken is a huge wrong turn. I think everybody realizes that. Um, they know it's not environmental. It's not healthy. Um, but a lot of people have this imagination that somehow if you are eating only fish, that maybe you're almost an environmentalist, but people have started to look at, at what happens. How, how do you scoop up a huge number of fish out of the ocean and, and get them on your plate? And one of the most troubling uh, ones that, that we have looked at is what's called bottom trawling. Uh, it's an enormous net that functions basically like a scoop and a boat drops it down to the ocean floor and drags it along, and sometimes two boats will, will drag them together. And it's effectively like running a lawnmower through a forest. Just whatever down on the bottom you pick up, which is target species, but also the fish species that weren't your targets, and the octopuses and, and the other animals all end up in the net, and then they're hauled up. And the trash species are discarded, and the target ones are sold. And people learned about this years ago, uh, with other kinds of nets, like purse seine nets, where you scoop them up just like a, a purse with a drawstring. And here are all the tuna you wanted. And oops, here are the dolphins too. Um, they, they are extremely unselective. Uh, the, this, the bottom trawling destroys the animals. It destroys the coral reefs. It destroys the ocean bottom. And so many, many people are now sounding alarm saying that if you're an environmentalist, fish is the first thing that you want to stop eating. Okay, but then I think that somebody who is a fish enthusiast would say, well, the oceans are so big, and you're talking about trolling just a small percentage of it. Really, what harm, what damage can be done if you're just operating in this, this small little confined area of the ocean? What is the effect on the ecosystem? Well, the effect is not small. The effect is enormous. Um, keep in mind that we are feeding billions and billions and billions of people through this uh, through the system, and the 
the fishing industry is highly competitive industry where you have different countries all fighting about who gets what territory. And the effect on the environment is huge. Let me give you another um, way of looking at this. Environmentalists are all used to going into the fast food restaurant and saying, don't give me that plastic straw because that plastic straw is going to end up in the ocean. It goes from the trash into the oceans. We don't want to have that because they've seen pictures of how straws end up washing into certain areas and the, the fish can end up swallowing them, that kind of stuff. Um, the contribution of straws to the plastics in the ocean is, is dramatically less than even 1%. What's all the plastic in the ocean? It's, it's fishing nets and fishing materials that have been used, cut off, discarded. Uh, as much as 40% of the plastic in the oceans is just the refuse from the fishing industry itself. And if you're ever along the beach and you see the remnants of a fishing net, you can see how unselective it is. It's drifting along in the ocean. And even if it's not connected to the boats anymore, the fish still get caught in it. And so it's killing uh, for decades and decades and decades after it has been used. Um, one last thing, Chuck. When I was a kid growing up in North Dakota, we used to get in the Chevy Impala and drive over to the Minnesota lakes. And we would cast out our, our lines. And somehow, you know, you would never think about um, driving a, a hook through the, the cheek of a, of a chicken or of a cow. Because you'd say that's extraordinarily painful. That's exactly what we did. Every time we would catch a trout or a walleye or, or a northern pike or the other, the other animals that we would pull up. And I, I'm, I have to say I'm always impressed by kids nowadays who are saying, that's just cruel. I don't want that. Give me the veggie burger instead. Um, so I, I think that when we start to add up the environmental concerns, the humane concerns, and frankly, the fact that Chinook salmon has about as much cholesterol and, and saturated fat as beef does, uh, it makes a pretty strong case for leaving the fish off our plate too. And you know what? I'm sitting here thinking, and you again, going back to those those really indiscriminate nets, and I remember, what was it, in the 80s, there was this big push to have dolphin-safe tuna because the yeah. dolphins were being caught in the tuna nets. And it sounds like here, if you're going for salmon or whatever the other fish is, you were just mentioning that the dolphins are probably going to get scooped up in these nets as well. Yeah, that was the, the whole idea was that if you get our brand of tuna, we're going to have spotters and, and so forth who are going to try to keep the dolphins out. It, I have to say, it has really been shown to be largely fictional. Um, in the, in, these are industries that are highly competitive. They want to get the tuna on your plate. They do not care if dolphins are, are killed or not in the process. And the, the, the certifications are utterly and completely meaningless. Um, that said, let me also uh, make a pitch for the tuna. If you have a heart for a dolphin and you don't want them to suffer, yeah, maybe, you know, what about the tuna? Let's, let's speak up for the tuna as well while we're at it. That's a fair point. Um, let's go back. You know, the tuna union saying, hey, you know, we count too. Hey, you know, my wife can organize them in a heartbeat. Um, so here's here's the question. I know that there was a study done a few years ago, I believe it was in 2016, and looked at the, the connection between um, not just what uh, the effect would be on the environment, but also on uh, people's health. 
if the world switched to a plant-based diet. And one of the things that they concluded was really kind of fascinating to me. It said, well, number one, if the entire world, as optimistic as this sounds, but if the entire world were to adopt a plant-based diet by the year 2050, so roughly 30 years from now, global mortality would decrease by 10%. But get this, Food-related greenhouse gas emissions would decrease by 70%. That seems to me to be a key figure, a large figure, and a figure that really we should be striving for when we always hear about these reports that we're on the brink of not being able to undo the damage that we've done. We've gone too far. But if we're able to drop it by 70% over the next three decades, you got to figure that's going to do a world of good. It's also the easiest choice to make. We can wait for people to cap their smokestacks. We can wait for Detroit to make uh, more fuel efficient cars. But you can change what you're having for lunch today. Um, so that's the beauty of it. It's extremely empowering to be able to make those choices. Absolutely. So as people here, uh, we kind of wrap things up here. As people really weigh uh, what it is that they're eating here and you sit down and you look at your plate. Matter of fact, you know what? Let me ask it this way. Uh, you had this epiphany. You grew up very much in, in a beef-loving uh, part of, of the nation here, and you obviously grew up eating red meat yourself. Mm -hmm. at, at what point did you look down at your plate and realize, hey, what I'm eating here not just impacts my, my own health, but the health of the environment? Do you remember the first time that everything kind of clicked for you and what those thoughts were, what emotions you were feeling? Well, you know, I have to say, I want to give credit where credit's due. Francis Moore LePay wrote a book decades ago called Diet for a Small Planet. And it was something that people read, they talked about, but I think they might have forgotten. Um, but, but her argument was really very simple. It was just, we can raise a lot of grains, feed them to animals, and get a little bit of meat out that we can, that we can eat. But if we eat the grains directly and the vegetables and the fruits and, and the, the bounty of botanical foods, not only will we have plenty for ourselves, but plenty to feed a hungry world. And so I remember hearing about that and thinking that it, it's obviously logical and obviously true. Um, the problem I think I might have had in my own life is that my own extended family's business, all my uncles and cousins and not to mention my grandpa and my dad and everybody as far back as I can trace was, was actually in the animal agricultural business. But we grow, we change, and we discover that the benefits are huge. Oh, you black vegan sheep, you. you. <laughs> uh, Dr. Neil Barnard, I appreciate that very much. This has been really enlightening. And uh, we will go ahead and drop a link to the uh, study that I was referencing there, that 2016 study. We'll drop that in the episode notes for you as well, so you can check that out for yourself. Dr. Barnard, thank you so very much. Thank you, Chuck. When I started with the Physicians Committee, I was so focused on my own health. I didn't really think too much about the effect that my new plant-based diet was also having on the health of, quite literally, the world. You know, people go vegan for three reasons. One of three reasons. It's either animals, their own health, or the health of the environment. And it's really not that hard to carry the flag for all three as time marches on because you pick up little nuggets along the way and eventually those little nuggets of knowledge, they cause a light bulb to go off and it's like, oh, well, how about that? That makes a lot of sense. And then you take those nuggets of knowledge and you begin to educate others. You school them up. 
which is exactly why we do the exam room. It is to teach thousands of people who then in turn can pay it forward and teach thousands of others, their friends, their family members, their loved ones. And before you know it, change, real change is happening. And you, you are a big part of it. So thank you so much for being here. And we're going to continue to hold court today continue to push change, continue to push progress. We're going to do that by dipping into our archives and unearthing a conversation with Dr. Martin Heller. Now, Dr. Heller was on the previous episode, but this conversation that you are about to hear is actually from season three. And you better believe we take a much closer look at that Burger King low methane emissions whopper. But before we go any further... I want to remind our animal-loving listeners that this episode is brought to you by Kinder Beauty. Visit KinderBeauty.com to learn more about their cruelty-free beauty box subscription service. We've talked about keto diets on the podcast. We've talked about elimination diets. We've talked about vegan diets, ad nauseum. We've talked about the Atkins diet, but never have we thought about diets in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And so that is why I am thrilled today to welcome to the exam room, Dr. Martin Heller. He is the Senior Research Specialist with the Center for Sustainable Systems at the University of Michigan. Dr. Heller, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chuck. You come on the show at such a good time because I'm going to talk to you about something very timely with Burger King in in just a minute. But let's also kind of talk a little bit further about that carbon footprint, because I think that the majority of us still think when it comes to protecting the environment, that means uh, using public transportation and driving less and saving electricity. But how much does our dietary choices contribute to environmental impact compared to those other measures like driving less? Yeah, sure. You know, um, I mean, if we look at that question globally, um, it, it kind of depends on on who you're asking and what some of the pieces that that get pulled into that. You know, there's some question marks like a lot of the stuff going on with land use change in in the rainforest and how exactly you account to that for that contributing. But globally, food systems agriculture is on the order of thirty to forty percent of total greenhouse gas emissions. If we look at a at a you know at a fossil fuel intensive economy like the U.S., it tends to be a bit smaller, um, but you know, it's still on the order of probably 10 to 15 percent of our total greenhouse gas emissions. And then when we look at indi- as ourselves as individuals and think about the kinds of impacts that we can easily make with our choices, it, it ranks right up there. What about in our dietary choices? What may be the most sinister food that we can eat? We've we've heard maybe it could be beef. Is that true? Is beef the worst food for the environment? Yeah, I, well, so if we're maintaining this this sort of um limited greenhouse gas emission lens, uh beef comes out rather high. In fact, on the top in terms of emissions per unit of edible food that we get out. 
And we, we can look at that a lot of different ways, whether you're talking about a, a kilogram of food or a calorie or some of the, the nutrients that it's providing. Regardless of the way you slice it, beef is usually pretty high. There's a, there's a number for, of reasons for that if we want to unpack it a little bit. One is, is simply the fact that, like, like all animals, consuming animals were eating farther up the food chain, right? So those animals require feed. There's some inefficiency in converting that feed into the, the animal food product that we consume. So, you know, there's, that's where we're, that's sort of eating higher up the food chain thing comes in. And those inefficiencies happen to be um, much higher. So we get less food energy out per unit of food energy that we put in to cows than we do to chickens or pork, or if we look at alternative things like insects and fish that, that have very high efficiency ratios. So that's one big piece. Cows just take a lot of food. They have to be, they're, they're big animals. They're alive for a long time before we harvest them. Um, the other important piece is actually related to why cows are part of our agriculture to begin with, why they're part of, of our food system, in that cows have the ability, as all ruminant animals do, to convert um, roughages, forages, that you and I can't, can't get any food energy out of. They have these complex stomachs that have a bunch of complicated um, microbiota in them, a bunch of microorganisms that help them break down those, those forages and lignans into things that the cow can then get energy from. Um, so, you know, that's a good thing. It's an opportunity for, for us as humans to utilize um, land spaces that otherwise can't grow other crops, you know, and it's a big reason why cows are part of our, our agriculture to begin with. Like I said, the unfortunate um, consequence of that, a, a byproduct of that, of that process is the production of, of methane. So some of the microorganisms in that gut as a byproduct to their own um, metabolism produce methane. And, you know, if we look, methane happens to be a very potent greenhouse gas. It, it, it has a lot higher impact on the order of 25 times that of CO2. So that's where we start talking about carb, cow burps, generally more burps than farts, but, you know, the fart jokes uh, go, go a bit farther. <laughs> so that's often where it comes back to. But that's, that's the other big piece. That's the other big contributor that cows make that really set them aside um, from other, other foods that, that we might consume. And, and, I mean, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into this, just kind of in lay terms. How substantial are these methane emissions? We'll just put it kindly, uh, in terms of the erosion of the environment. Like, how detrimental is it really to our climate? Yeah. So, I mean, I think probably the best way to look at this, right, maybe you can help me think about how, how we, can, we can portray that. I mean, we, we can look at how they're contributing to our current diet, what their contributions are to the current diet. How detrimental are they to the environment? I mean, from my perspective, we're in the midst of a climate crisis at this point. And I, I don't think that particularly here in the U.S. and probably globally, we've really stepped up to the fact of just how much of a crisis that is. 
and we as a society need to make urgent, immediate action to, to attempt to reduce our current emissions to hopefully get us to a place where we can expect a, a somewhat stable um, climate in, in, our, in, in my children's future. Um, so, you know, methane is a part of that. Animal systems are, you know, agriculture, food production, and livestock are a part of that. They're not the whole picture. You know, I, I don't mean to suggest that changing our diet is going to solve the climate crisis, but it's, it's a part of it. And the crisis that we're in is such that we need to be taking action in as many parts as we can simultaneously to make um, reductions quickly and swiftly. That's, that's my personal um, take on it. And more recently, we have seen from Burger King, their take is that essentially cows are going to toot us into non-existence. And so they have come out and they have decided that we are going to try to feed some of our cattle lemongrass. And theoretically, this 100 grams of lemongrass a day will reduce their methane emissions by a third. Now, once you get past the juvenile humor aspect of this, I got to ask you, how much validity is there to this science and will it even make an impact? This, this has been something that, that, um, that animal scientists have been looking at for a long time, um, changing rations, adding things to the rations of, of ruminant animals to try to reduce this methane emission um, issue. Um, I, I think that that's relevant and important science, you know, I mean, Regardless of, of, well, we're not going to be able to change our diet quick enough that, you know, it's not important to, to also try to make efforts to reduce those emissions um, at their source. So it's, it's certainly important science, you know. Whether we should um, get all, all enthusiastic about it and start doing synchronized swimming on melting ice glaciers is a, is a different question. Um, and if we actually take that, that 33% reduction in methane emissions and look at some of the fine prints in it, so the studies they're basing that on are actually looking at emissions just over the three or four months at the very end, what we call the finishing stage of raising cattle. Um, and... Um, it turns out that in, it, over the entire life cycle of raising that animal, which includes maintaining the, the herd, maintaining its mama and papa that, that have to be there in order to, to produce the animal that we harvest, right, that we consume, those, those, that finishing stage is only about 10% of the total methane emissions, okay? So we're talking about a 33% reduction of, 10% of the total methane emissions. And if we want to then take it up to the carbon footprint level, while the methane emissions are important, uh, you know, a dominant important part of the overall carbon footprint of producing beef, it's still 56%. Growing the feed, um, other contributors um, come into play as well. Methane from, from their, their manure, handling the manure. So by the time that we multiply those through, 33% of 10% of 56% of, of the carbon footprint, it's, we're really talking about a less than 2% reduction 
um, in the carbon footprint, in actual greenhouse gas emissions of producing beef. Yeah, that seems like clever marketing then on their part. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I've, I've seen blog posts all over the place where people are pointing this out. You know, it, I'm, I'm not unique in, in identifying some of that. Um, yeah. So again, you know, I don't, I don't want to suggest that those kinds of efforts aren't worthwhile, but there's a bit of hyperbole going on in, in how they're, they're marketing it, surely. And, you know, I think the challenge is what it seems that they're asking people to do is don't, don't look into this further. Don't investigate it. We're solving the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than encouraging people to actually consider their diet, you know, don't worry. You can continue to eat Burger King hamburgers. It's not a problem. We're going to take care of it. You know, I, I wonder if they are charging a premium for the reduced methane emissions beef whopper, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue either. No, not quite. <laughs> they do charge a premium for the impossible whopper, which I, I should say, you know, does have a significant reduction in, in greenhouse gas emissions relative to beef. You, you would say that the the savings there would far outpace the savings for the reduced methane emissions beef whopper? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, so just to put those, some yeah. of those things in perspective, Chuck, you know, we're talking about this boils down to less than 2% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Even if we switched from beef to pork, it's like an 83% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Beef to chicken, 87% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And beef to, uh, to plant-based um, protein sources, even greater than that, you know. We did a we we did a study on the Beyond Burger and uh, shucks I'm not going to have the exact number in my mouth but it, it's it's around 95 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from wow. beef to to um, Beyond Burger so I think it's important to keep some of those choices in in perspective right yeah uh, what are some other foods other than uh, beef that are really high up there on that list yeah. So the way that we've been investigating this is we've linked a lot of those environmental impacts associated with producing the food. And, and, you know, just to be clear, we're looking primarily at the farm gate emissions, at what's associated with just producing those commodities. It gets a lot more challenging to try to track everything that goes on with processing and packaging and distribution of the, you know, 7,000 plus um, foods that show up in in our our U.S. diet. Um, so we're primarily looking at just the the agricultural production of those commodities, but then we're linking that information to the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey um, individual self selected diets. So we're losing using data from the 2005 to 2010 cohort of this ongoing survey where we ask people one one day what they ate. And if you do that, that survey with enough um, frequency and with the right amount of people, we can say, okay, this is representative of the distribution of the U.S. diet. So we've made those linkages and then we're able to then rank the, um, the, the U, typical U.S. diets by their, their carbon footprint, by their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and then the way that we've chosen to sort of look at it is slice it up into into 
um, quintiles of the population? How does the top 20% compare to the bottom 20% of, um, of carbon footprint of those diets, right? Um, that, that top 20%, the highest emitters, are contributing 46% to the total greenhouse gas emissions um, associated with, with all of our diets. The bottom is, is 6%. So like an eightfold difference between the top and bottom. That's kind of the, the, the range that we're looking at. Let me ask you about uh, water usage in terms of beef production as well. We've heard that it takes thousands and thousands of gallons just to produce a single pound of ground beef. Is yeah. that assessment accurate? What have you gleaned over your years of studying? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we talked a lot about greenhouse gas emissions, and, and I, I kind of got on my soapbox about how important I think those um, that issue is currently, but it's certainly not the only environmental impact that um, that our diets contribute to, that, that food contributes to. So another big piece is water use. There's water scarcity in regions uh, across the globe, um, and this is something that folks have been associated associating with dietary choice for a while, but one thing that we added to that analysis is recognizing that water use isn't the same in every location. Uh, using a gallon of water in California has a much different impact on other users, both human and, and ecosystem users of that water, than it does a gallon of water consumed in Wisconsin, where you know, water is prevalent. So we're adding this, this water scarcity metric that's, that's very regional, that, it, that we're looking at at the watershed level, that it differs across the country, especially you know, a country with um, as much diversity in, in climate as, as the U.S. Um, and then connecting that up with, with our best understanding of where those commodity crops are grown across the U.S., and then aggregating that back up to a national level and linking it again with these same self-selected individual diets. Um, certainly, beef comes out at the top in this water scarcity metric as well. I mean, yes, it's true that it requires a lot of water to, to grow uh, beef, and most of that is coming in the form of irrigation of, of crops that they're consuming. Um, it's, it's far less uh, about the water that the animals actually drink, but, um, you know, dominated by far with irrigation. Um, but we also consume a lot of, of beef in the U.S. Um, the interesting thing, how looking at water scarcity differs from looking at carbon footprint, is there are a lot of plant-based foods that also require a lot of water and typically are produced in in relatively water-scarce regions of the U.S. We think about the Central Valley of California, right, where all of our almonds come from, where a lot of the vegetables and fruits that we consume in the U.S. come from. Um, so, whereas, you know, our, our animal-based foods, a lot of the feeds that, that, they're, um, that they're consuming, corn and soybeans, while, yes, there is some, some water use going on there, they tend to be happening in um, less water scarce regions, so they don't get as large of a of a um, of an increase when we look at this additional characterization, right? Right. Um, so 
Whereas when we're thinking about carbon footprint, pretty much any shift to a plant-based food um, from animal-based foods, especially from beef, um, looks positive. When we're talking about water use, um, it, it's more of a depend scenario. Things like tree nuts that, that are water-intensive, um, you know, almonds, walnuts, pecans, cashews, um, tend to have a, water, a, a large water scarcity impact per kilogram of, of nuts provided. Um, so that, that's, it's, it's an important nuance. And then, you know, the same thing happens when we look at, at fruits and vegetables as well. Let's kind of tie it into what the wheelhouse of the show is all about, and that is nutrition. Another point that you're going to raise here is that these diets that are uh, high greenhouse gas emission diets uh, are actually detrimental by and large to human health as well, significantly increasing the, uh, the risk of death from cardiovascular disease and things of that nature. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. And I, you know, I think this is something that your guests on the show have talked about in, in, in the in the past that these animal-based foods do have higher risks of, of a number of um, non-communicable diseases like, um, you know, like cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality and, uh, you know, things of that nature, stroke. So what we, we looked at this a couple different ways. Again, you know, I remember I was talking about differentiating between the high emission diets and the low emission diets. So we, we kind of aggregate those, those top and bottom 20% and, and looking, we're looking at those as a group and comparing, um, first of all, the, the diet quality, usually using the healthy eating index, which is really just a, a measure of how closely a diet um, matches with dietary recommendations, right? And most of our diets in the U.S. are, are fairly poor with a generally score lower than 50 on a on a hundred point scale um, and we found that those top and bottom ones are right in that range but significantly different statistically significantly different um, with the the low emission diets having a higher um, dietary quality than the upper um, than the upper diets but then we also did some epidemiological modeling um, and you know that borrows from a lot of the a lot of the epidemiology studies that link, um, you know, dietary intake to actual disease mortality. And again, looking at those top and bottom and found that the, the high emission diets have a 28% higher risk of cardiovascular and, and cancer disease mortality than those lower emission diets. So, um, it, you know, it's what we've experienced to see based on, on what we hear about the impacts of animal-based foods and, and how we expected the, this carbon footprint distribution to, to play out. But, you know, it, it's always great when the, the numbers actually support what your um, hypothesis is, right? Absolutely. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more about these low emission diets, plant foods in particular. We, you touched on this a little bit earlier in the interview, but I'm wondering if we can do maybe uh, a head-to-head comparison, not an apples to oranges comparison mm. here, but mm. uh, say a, a meat to spinach comparison or some other vegetable. How vast of a difference are we talking in terms of overall greenhouse gas emissions, that totality yeah. of everything that goes into it? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, just just as sort of a rough number, it's on the order of a factor of twenty five to thirty. 
So, you know, the, the, the number that we use for beef is on the order of 30 kilograms of CO2 equivalents per kilogram of boneless beef produced. And most of the plant-based foods are on the order of one. Um, you know, so, and it could be one to three, maybe. Um, a lot of them are, are less than one, you know, a lot of legumes, beans. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a reasonable comparison on, on the, a, a factor of 25 to 30 um, difference. Of course, you we, know, spinach and beef don't provide you with the same nutrition. So no. we have to be careful about making that, as you said, an apple to apple comparison. Um, but that's where looking at, at whole complete diets is, is perhaps a, an easier way to make comparisons. When you first began looking at this type of data 20 some odd years ago at this point, um, were you surprised at just how much of a difference there was between the, the two? I mean, I'm sure that you suspected perhaps that uh, plant-based foods uh, were going to be on the lower end of the spectrum, but we're talking about a like really significant difference here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, it's, as I was alluding to earlier in our conversation, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a strange irony of, of the fact that these ruminant animals have become part of our agriculture because of this special, this special function that they have, right? They're able to eat, eat grass, um, you know, and, and, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago when we brought cows into our, into our villages, that was, that was a pretty cool thing, you know, wow, I can turn this cow out on grass. It gives me some milk, it gives me some, some meat. That's that's a good deal. You know, now in the 21st century and we're looking at a lot of the environmental crises that we face, there's this this very strange irony that those those animals have this byproduct that is a a very um potent greenhouse gas emission. Recently on the show, I got a chance to ask Dr. Michael Greger a question related to uh, the pandemic. I asked him flat out what would the net effect be on this pandemic if the entire world adopted a plant-based diet? I'm not going to ask you about the pandemic, but what would the net effect be on greenhouse gas emissions if the whole world adopted a plant-based diet? What do you think that impact could be? If we're just looking at greenhouse gas emissions, you know, I don't, I don't have an, a number off the top of my head. We, we can talk through some of the numbers, the, the estimates that we've looked at. Um, at those, some of those um, reduction scenarios, uh, you know, at a global level, I think it gets a little complicated because there are a lot of regions in the world where um, where livestock play a very different uh, role, um, both in the, in the welfare like the economic welfare, social welfare, as well as nutritional welfare of, of individuals, right? Um, of some of the, the poor um, parts of, of our, our global society. Um, so it becomes a, a bit more complicated question, which is I think why we in, in developed countries who have grown accustomed to, to consuming large quantities of these high quality proteins like beef um, need to really consider our environmental impact. So 
you know, just to talk through some of these scenarios, we we said, well, what if, what, what would be the environmental impact if we substituted 50% of all animal-based foods in the U.S. diet with plant-based um, equivalents, you know, so... We looked at, you know, we, we threw beans and, and soybean and nuts and seeds and all those things kind of in the ratios that, that they show up in the vegetarian dietary recommendations um, and, you know, made, made an equivalent protein substitution of all the animal-based foods. So that's meats, dairy, eggs, um, fish and seafood. And what we found is that... Um, by by 2030, we said, okay, well, let, let's say it takes us till 2030 to, to, to get to that reduction. Um, the difference between a steady state of continuing to eat the diet we we're eating currently and that 50% reduction in, in animal-based foods um, is on the order of 224 million metric tons of CO2 equivalents less per year. That means nothing to nobody. Um, <laughs> but if we put it in some other... Uh, in some other terms, it's 47.5 million cars. It's equivalent to the emissions of taking 47.5 million cars off the road. If we look at it in terms of the, the reductions that the U.S. needs to make in order to meet something like a, a Paris Agreement um, level uh, reduction, which, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll find ourselves in an administration that actually finds that important. Um, this 50% reduction in, in livestock emissions would represent 24% of the reductions that we need to make in order to meet a, a Paris climate agreement. And that's, that's just taking us to basically half of us be, I mean, we can all, we could say, okay, everyone is eating 50% less meat or half of us are vegetarians. The rest of you can keep on eating the rest of the way you are. <laughs> or excuse me. Yeah, I mean, I guess we have to go a bit farther than that. But it's significant. And then if we take it a step farther and say, okay, 50% all animal-based foods, but we drop beef to 90%, then that jumps up to 36% of the reductions necessary to meet those targets. The fact that you are able to quantify that really just – it boggles my mind. Uh, you, sir, are far smarter than I could ever <laughs> pretend to be. You are just a fascinating individual. I have so enjoyed our time together here today. Thank you so very much for your time, my friend. This has just been a real treat. Thank you, Chuck. It was fun. Now, history shows that it did not take very long at all for Burger King to stop touting their green Whopper because the backlash against their claims was so swift and so stern that they simply stopped advertising it. And that was all she wrote for the low methane emissions Whopper. Turns out that according to a report in The Guardian, Burger King was relying on an inconclusive study to arrive at their figures. And if you would like to continue the discussion about how your food choices are impacting global warming and rising tides and the environment you want to keep on learning, I encourage you to check out the Physicians Committee's Plant-Based Climate Summit. This was our first one ever 
where we had 11 experts weigh in on these topics. And among the speakers was Dr. Michael Greger. And everyone was talking about how your food choices are impacting not just your health, but the health of the very world we all inhabit. And you can find a link to the Climate Summit in the episode notes. And also in the episode notes, you will find a link to kinderbeauty.com. And I want to take a moment to say thank you once again to the crew at Kinder Beauty for so generously sponsoring this episode. Founders Daniela Monet and Ivana Lynch created this beauty subscription box company to offer products that are kind to your skin, they're kind to the planet, and they have never been tested on animals. We love that Daniela and Ivana helped to support the Physicians Committee's work with every single box that shipped out as well. And you can learn more about Kinder Beauty and their amazing beauty boxes by visiting kinderbeauty.com. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you hit that subscribe button, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review. Because each new subscription and five-star rating truly does not only help to save a life, improve someone's quality of life, but it also helps to make the world a healthier place for us all. And for today, that's going to do it. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard and to Dr. Martin Heller for their time. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>